Matthew 12, on page 816, and I'm going to read from verse 1. We're going to look at the first 14 verses this morning. Uh, one of our habits at Christ Church is to preach through uh, books of the Bible. So we've been going through Matthew for a while. We took a break and have now come back to it. And today we begin at verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck ears of corn to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Well, this is the word of the Holy Spirit uh, to his church. Uh, from the youngest of ages, we're used, aren't we, to empty promises. Uh, whether it's the advertising industry or parents who lead us slightly astray, we're, we're used to that experience of getting incredibly excited about something and then it's failing to deliver. Uh, with children, it happens with toys. So you see these amazing adverts. At the moment, one of my children has seen a, a, an advert for a, a dolphin that she wants for her birthday. Uh, and on the advert, uh, it's an advert for a, a toy dolphin, a kind of big, cuddly toy dolphin. And on the advert, the, the shots change really quickly between a real dolphin, who's kind of making dolphin noises and jumping around in the sea and chirp, chirp, chirping, and the, the toy dolphin. So in her mind, I'm pretty sure she thinks, if she gets this present, that more or less she's going to get a real-life dolphin. Uh, I read the reviews of this thing on Amazon, and almost universally, the parents all say, 40 quid down the drain. It's a cuddly toy that vaguely opens and shuts its mouth, but that's about it. Uh, maybe you can think back to something you desperately wanted as a child, and when it turned up, it was just a bit of a disappointment. I'm going to save my daughter from that, but don't tell her that. It goes on, though, doesn't it? You know, the diet that's going to make you lose three stone by Christmas. The kind of ab-crunching machine that will turn you uh, into uh, an Adonis. Uh, the uni that looks like it's just going to be fun and games and keeps a little bit quiet about the endless essays and study. Perhaps you've seen the army posters. I don't know if they've changed this recently, but for a while, the posters advertising the army and the navy made it look essentially like a kind of holiday camp. The guys in the army were always kind of playing volleyball on the beach. The guys in the navy were windsurfing. 
Now, if you went in thinking that's what the experience of being in the military is going to be like, it's going to be a bit of a shock, frankly, when people start shooting at you. We're used to empty promises and perhaps have even become a bit sceptical uh, given the, the power of the advertising industry. I just wonder if as Christians, sometimes we hear some of the promises of God in Scripture and deep down wonder, is this another empty promise? Look with me at the end of chapter 11, one of those glorious promises that Jesus makes. Verse 28. We looked at this last week, but I just want to read it again. Chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Stop following me, says Jesus, and you'll find rest. Does it feel like that? If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, does your life feel like one of rest? I mean, it's a great verse, isn't it? It's the kind of verse we, you know, we text each other when we're, we're down. It's the kind of verse that gets on cute posters and nice kind of calligraphy cards in Christian shops. But is it empty? My yoke is easy. We saw last week that, that yokes uh, are an image of, of following someone. You're having them as your master. Jesus is saying, in other words, that, that following me is easy. Did you ever say that? Following Jesus is easy. My burden is light. Again, if you've been Christ, a Christian a while, do you feel that your shoulders are very lightly burdened? But for many of us, I suggest, we, we feel tired. We find following Jesus hard work. It's just beginning to weigh down on us. And we hear these promises, and we don't want to say that Jesus isn't speaking the truth, but we wonder where the disconnect is. Here's Jesus saying that following me means having a light burden, finding rest. And here's me weighed down. So where's the problem? We know the problem isn't with Jesus. So we start wondering where we've gone wrong. Perhaps... You've been around church things for a while. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home and you're just a bit sceptical. You've never quite committed yourself. You know, your, your parents are Christians or your aunts, your uncles, your grandparents, maybe an older sibling, but you yourself. And this just doesn't ring true. As you look in at the church and the Christian faith, it, it just doesn't look that attractive. Life looks far easier outside the church where you can fit in. Perhaps you're just starting at university or starting studying, and you're well aware that most people in your flat, on your course, in your halls, in your office, aren't going to be Christians. Surely life would be easier, well, just to fit in and throw off this burden of following Jesus. Is this another empty promise, in other words? It's not one that Jesus backs off on. Uh, having offered this rest, we get two incidents in, in the story we read today. Two incidents that both happen on the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is the day of rest. So there's a link between Jesus saying, look, I'm the, uh, I'm the one who can bring you rest. And then talking about how we're to observe that the Sabbath, uh, the day of rest. But he doesn't back down. Look at verse 8. The Son of Man, that's his name for himself, Jesus, is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath is essentially a Hebrew word for rest. 
So Jesus is saying, look, I'm Lord of, the re- Lord of rest. I'm the king of rest. He's not stepping away. He's not qualifying what he said last week. Well, I know I said that, you know, I'd give you rest, but look, you've got to understand it's more complex than that. No, straight away, he's saying, look, I'm the king of rest. How do I find this rest? If your experience is very different to Jesus' promise, I hope what we look at today will help us will help us move closer to experiencing the rest that Jesus promises. That's our key question. How do I find the rest that Jesus promises? And it's really just two things to believe. Almost everything in the Christian life is about what we believe rather than what we do, first and foremost. So two things to believe. The first is we're called to believe that God's word alone rules you. Okay, That's the first thing you must believe. God's word alone rules you. Now, straight away, you might be saying, oh, okay, here we go. Uh, Here's that talk about the Bible, God's word. Okay, I know I'm meant to read my Bible. I know I'm meant to listen to the sermons. I'm meant to read good Christian books. I've heard it all before, but but just just hang on a minute. If the sort of mental shutters are dropping already. I think what Jesus has to say to us in this passage is a little bit more, well, it's a little bit deeper than that. But we're going to have to dive in and and pick apart what at first sight looks like a pretty unpromising uh, scene. It's almost a court scene. So in verses 1 through 8, which is our first section, we're seeing Jesus as a defence lawyer. The scene, verse 1, is that the disciples are walking with Jesus through the cornfields, and they're hungry. So they pluck some of the ears of corn. Children, you know the way that grain grows, you've got the log stalk, and then you've got the kind of corn on the top. They pick some off, and it's a bit like kind of grabbing some crisps or something like that. It's a snack as they walk through, grabbing an apple off the tree. But it's the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are furious. Uh, the Sabbath, as I said already, was that uh, the day of rest. It was given in creation, so the, the way God uh, made the world was six days of, uh, of his work, and on the seventh, him resting. Uh, and so right from creation, the pattern was that we as human beings worked six days and then rested one. Uh, So when the nation of Israel was formed properly at Mount Sinai with Moses, God wrote this Sabbath into the commandments, the fourth commandment, isn't it? Uh, Remember the Sabbath day. And when God gave the the Ten Commandments, he gave the the people of Israel, the the Jewish people, two reasons, uh, particularly for having this Sabbath. The first was to look back to creation. God worked six days and rested one, so they should do the same. But the second was, it was to remind them of their salvation, When the Ten Commandments are given the second time in Deuteronomy, God says that the Sabbath is about remembering the rest they have because they've been brought out of being slaves. Now, for 400 years, the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. Essentially, 400 years without a day off. Imagine that. Sometimes we complain because we have to work on a day off or something. Imagine 400 years without a day off. So, So when they're rescued out of slavery, and God says, look, a day a week is a day of rest, that the people of Israel were delighted that the Sabbath was never meant to be a burden. It wasn't meant to be a day where look, everything stopped and it was the dull day, the worst day of the week. It was meant to be the best day of the week. That was true for Adam in Eden. Uh, on his day of rest, that first Sabbath in Eden, what was Adam to do? Just sit still and kind of stare at the tree? No. He was meant to enjoy everything that he'd worked to produce during the week had the fall not happened 
If he'd pick some apples and made a pie, sit down and enjoy the best pie. Pick some grapes, crush some wine, have a nice glass of wine. It was meant to be a day of feasting, not famine. And so too for the Israelites, it was meant to be this great day of rest, the highlight of the week. But the Pharisees had come along and ruined it. And we meet them in verse 2, the Pharisees saw it, saw the disciples picking this grain, and say to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, the disciples are not breaking any of the Old Testament laws. If you read the Old Testament and read the rules about the Sabbath, there's nothing about this. The disciples are doing nothing wrong. In fact, the laws in the Old Testament are pretty light in terms of the detail of what's to be done or not done on the Sabbath. Certainly, we're told to stop from our work and give the day to the Lord. It's a day of rest and worship. But there's very little detail. And so the Pharisees stepped in to fill in the blanks. The Pharisees had all sorts of extra rules they put in. Uh, One commentator when he translates this passage, so decided that actually people nowadays don't really know who Pharisees are, so translated the word Pharisees as the serious ones. Okay, these are the guys who thought they were taking Scripture seriously. And in order to take God's word seriously and his rules in the Old Testament, they, they added and added and added. So they saw this, this, uh, this law in Ten Commandments. It was meant to be a blessing. They saw this law about stop your work and rest to give a day to the Lord. I thought, well, it's too vague. So what do they do? Well, they say, you're allowed to walk two-thirds of a mile on a Sabbath day, but not three-quarters. Uh, they say, well, we need to be more tight about what work is. What counts as work? And so they wrote lists. There's 39 different categories. I won't list them all now. Each category has subcategories. Things like lighting a candle was work. You weren't allowed to do it. Looking in a mirror was work. You weren't allowed to do it extraordinarily to our ears. At one point, in the, in the time between the Testaments, so, so Malachi is about 400 years before Jesus, the last book of the Old Testament, in the gap in between, we've got other stories about what happened. They're not Bible stories, they're not the Word of God, but we've got other historians. Uh, they tell us about a time when the, uh, a family called the Maccabees were ruling, and another army came to attack Jerusalem. And it happened on the Sabbath. And the ruler said, well, it's a Sabbath, so we can't fight. So they let themselves get slaughtered rather than fight back. Men, women, and children. Now, there's nothing about that in God's word. In fact, later they realised even that one was going too far, so they kind of backed down on it. But the point is, that the Pharisees, they, they, they talk about building a hedge around God's word, adding more and more and more. And they do that because they thought that if they could just get all the Jewish people of Jesus' day to be really holy, keep the laws, then God would bless them. The Pharisees knew they weren't at rest. They knew that all wasn't well with the world. The Romans had conquered them. The Greeks had conquered them. The Babylonians had conquered them. The Assyrians had conquered them. They they were in a mess. They knew they weren't experiencing God's blessing. They weren't having this Sabbath rest. So they thought, if we just try harder, God will bless us. And hence they're furious with Jesus for letting his disciples seemingly work by crushing corn in their fingers on the Sabbath. Who are you, they say to Jesus, verse 2. It's interesting they go for Jesus rather than disciples. The disciples are the one crushing the coin, but it's Jesus they go for. Your disciples are doing what is not lawful. That's not actually right. Jesus very easily could have said, look, that's not right. But, but he goes deeper. 
At the first level, his answer is this kind of defence lawyer. Well, it looks like he's just wrestling with the Old Testament. He quotes from three of the areas of the Old Testament. He quotes from the writings, the stories of the Old Testament. He quotes from the law, the first five books. And he quotes from the prophets. So he goes to the stories and says, well, what about that time when David and his men, King David, were, were hungry? Oh, you can read about the story in 1 Samuel. And they eat food when technically they maybe shouldn't have done. So they go to the temple and they eat this Sabbath bread, the tabernacle, sorry. They eat this bread that came out every Sabbath. There are times in your own stories, Pharisees, where people eat grain, bread, when technically it might not have been allowed. There are exceptions. He goes to the temple and says, what about the priests? The priests work on a Sabbath. The law permits it. The priests had to work, of course. They were doing the sacrifices on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is saying, look, sometimes it's okay to do work on the Sabbath day. And overall, what about the prophets? Uh, In verse 7, he quotes from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's God's word to his people in Hosea. Saying, look, people, if you're so obsessed about sacrifices and the temple and rituals, and you don't care about people, you're not willing to show mercy, then you've got the whole thing wrong. So at one level, Jesus goes to the Old Testament and says, look, Pharisees, you've just got this wrong. But actually, he's doing something much deeper, much deeper, and much more helpful for us once we uh, grasp what he's up to. What he's really doing is confronting the Pharisees and saying, you have no idea who I am. You come to me and say, how dare you let your disciples do this? I'll tell you why I dare. And subtly but brilliantly, he makes a case for his identity that they've completely missed. Go back to that first story, the story of David. David was... Do you know what David was in the Old Testament, what job he did? Do you know what he did? He was a king. Okay, he was king. And in the story that Jesus refers to in 1 Samuel, David, he's not on the throne yet. He's been told that he is the true king, but a guy called Saul is actually on the throne. So God has sent his prophet Samuel to anoint David with oil and say, you are God's true king. Now, anoint in Hebrew is, is, is the word Messiah. David has been messiahed, we might say. But he's not on the throne. So he's having to flee from the, the illegitimate rulers, the guys who've seized power but shouldn't be in power. He's on the run. He's hungry. His men are hungry. And they eventually come to the tabernacle, the, the meeting place of God. And the priests recognize that because he is the king, he is allowed to eat the bread that normally is only for priests. Uh, this bread of the presence in verse 4 that sits in the house of God. There were 12 loaves that sat in the center of the, of the tabernacle later the temple. And they were just for the priests. Normally, soldiers wouldn't be allowed to eat them, but they were hungry. And because David, God's anointed king, was there, the priests, yeah, okay, on your authority, you are God's king, David, so yes, you can eat this bread. What is Jesus saying by telling this story? He's saying, look, the same thing's happening today. David was God's anointed king. He wasn't enthroned yet. No one saw that he was king, but he was. He was the one who'd been anointed, chosen by God. It's just the rulers of the day didn't Yet, believe it. They were persecuting him. So he was quite right to feed his disciples. That's who I am, said Jesus. I'm the true heir of David. I'm the true anointed one. I'm the true king. By comparing the two stories, he's saying, I am like David. Children, I wonder if you've seen the the new Star Wars movies. Um, I'm a bit lost on all the names now. I, I 
I can't keep up with it. But, but one of the recent ones, when, when I went to see it, looked exactly like one of the ones I saw first in the 80s. Okay, if you've seen the new Star Wars movies, okay, back in the 80s, you've got a big kind of round Death Star. You know, this big round kind of spaceship thing that's going to blow up the planets, haven't you? And you've got a bad guy, Darth Vader, all dressed in black with a mask. You go and watch a film a year or two ago, the new Star Wars, what do you see? There's a big round sort of scary spaceship that's going to blow up planets. Who's the bad guy? He's all dressed in black. He's got a scary mask. He might have a new name, but it's meant to remind us of the old film. The new story looks just like the old one. Well, Jesus is saying, look, my story is just like David's story. I am God's king. And therefore, if I say the disciples can eat, they can eat. It's the same with the temple. The priests had to work on the Sabbath to offer all these sacrifices. So therefore, my disciples can work, says Jesus. At this point, the Pharisees are saying, what do you want about? If the priests can work, what's that got to do with your disciples? It's a bit like if you get caught speeding, you're doing 80 miles an hour down the motorway, and the police pull you over, and you say, well, I just saw an ambulance go past at 90, so I thought it was okay. It's okay for the ambulance, it doesn't mean it's okay for you. The Pharisees say to Jesus, look, okay, the priests are allowed to work. What's that got to do with you? You're not a priest. Your disciples aren't priests. We're not in the temple. And what does Jesus say? Verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. That is staggering as a claim. Children, do you know who lived in the temple? Right at the heart of the temple, whose house the temple was? It was, well, yeah, it was God's house, yeah. In the Old Testament, God symbolically lived in that temple. The temple was the place you met God. And Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple. Why? Because I am where you meet God now. Matthew's gospel began by telling us Jesus was going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. By claiming to be great in the temple, Jesus is saying, look, I'm almost like I am a walking temple. And so that the servants who walk after me, my disciples, they're like little priests. Just as the priests worked on the Sabbath offering sacrifices, well, my, my disciples can, well, if they're doing my work, they're doing the work of God. Uh, even his title in verse 8, the Lord of the Sabbath is a claim to be God. Who made the first Sabbath day in Genesis? Who was king of that rest day in Genesis 1 and 2? God. The day belongs to God. It's holy, we're told in Genesis 2. Holy things belong to God. And Jesus turns up and says, it's my day. Jesus essentially is saying, the reason the disciples can do this is because they're with me. I am God's king. I am God himself in the flesh. Now, yes, as a matter of fact, they're not breaking the law anyway. But ultimately, it's my word that counts, Pharisees, not yours. I am the one they should be listening to, not you. It is my word that brings blessing, not yours. My yoke they should be bearing, not yours. Now, what's that got to do with us? I realise that's quite heavy. Okay, we've been in some depths of a, a theological argument that would have persuaded Jewish people, but is not instantly sort of accessible to our ears. What's this got to do with us? Well, it tells us a little bit about the Sabbath. I don't want to get too much down into the weeds here, but it tells us straight away that the Sabbath day is not meant to be this great burden. A friend, a Northern Irish friend, tells me that when he was little, um, in his local park, people used to wrap up the swings you know, put them round and round and round so they couldn't swing, couldn't have fun. Okay, that's a complete misunderstanding of what the Sabbath day is meant to be about. Now, I'm aware that some people think the Sabbath is finished now, that, that actually there is no day of rest. 
Again, I haven't got time to get into that now. I don't think that's right. It wasn't just something that was given by Moses, just for Israel, you know, like, the, like the, um, the sacrifices in the temple. It was something given in creation. It's woven into the, the pattern of our lives. So, so we're meant to be experiencing that day, what is now called the Lord's Day. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. In the New Testament, um, we get taught about the Lord's Day. We're meant to experience that, that day as a day of rest and blessing. Not fear that we're putting our foot wrong or got, walk too many paces or whatever it might be. But, but I, if you want to think about the Sabbath, come back to Sunday school in a few weeks. But we'll talk about that in more depth. We haven't got time for that really today. The bigger point is this. It is Jesus' yoke, Jesus' way of life, Jesus' teaching alone that will bring you rest and freedom. And the reason that so many of us feel burdened the reason that so many of us feel weighed down is because we've added to God's word. The crucial thing is it's God's word alone that's meant to direct our life, rule our life. And we are always adding things in. But, but sometimes to add can be to take away, can't it? Sometimes when you add stuff to something, it, it makes it less good than it was before. Cherry Coke. Okay? Coke, good. Cherry Coke, abysmal. Okay, imagine someone, if you're really rich and you could buy the Mona Lisa and then inviting your friends around to see it and you put little curtains up over in front of it, you say, look, I, just before I draw the curtains back, I, I want you to let you know that I've made an addition. Okay? I've drawn a little hat on her. Okay? I've added to her, even better. Disaster. What does Chris Tomlin do to every hymn? Okay? Got a perfectly good hymn, Amazing Grace. He adds a chorus and ruins it. I like Chris Tomlin's songs on the way, that's a slightly cheap shot. There is a way of ruining things by adding to them, isn't there? That's what the Pharisees have done. They don't deny God's word, but they add to it. They're not what you might call liberals. They're not ripping pages out of the Old Testament. There were groups in Jesus' day who did that, who didn't believe that the Bible was the word of God, who didn't like certain parts of it. But that's not the Pharisees. The Pharisees were orthodox in one sense. This is the word of God, and to protect it, we'll add and add and add. And they added and added and added until it became incredibly burdensome. And I still think we do the same. It's so easy to do the same. Three things we add. We add commands that God never added. And then when we fail to keep those commands, we feel burdened. So, so let's pick two classics, for, if, if you're an evangelical. See, two staples of the Christian life. The quiet time. I was taught, I became a Christian in my teens, pretty much the first thing I was taught, okay, I'm a Christian, what do I do? First thing I was taught, every morning you get up, you read the Bible. Is that commanded in Scripture? No. Is it a good thing to do? Yes. Okay, that is something I do. It's a good thing, but is it a command? No. Now there are commands to pray continually. Uh, there are commands, if you read it the right way, to meditate on Scripture, but to read a new bit each day? No. I mean, part of the reason there's no command is that people wouldn't have been able to obey it. Most people couldn't read. They certainly didn't have a Bible, so God doesn't give commands that are impossible to obey. So, so we've turned a good idea and made it the one thing that shows you're living a truly Christian life. And then we forget to read the Bible, we, we're lazy, we don't read the Bible, a new bit of the Bible that day, and we feel crushed down. But there's no command there. It's a good thing... But it's not compulsory. Joining a small group. Now, we've just started small groups. They're great. Okay, I would love it if everyone who joins church joined a small group. Are they compulsory? No. 
Can you give me a single verse in the Bible that says you must be in a small group? And normally when you ask that question, people come back and say things like, well, yeah, what about the, the commands to encourage one another? Yeah, that's a command. You must encourage one another. But it doesn't say you have to do that in the context of a Wednesday evening meeting. If you don't want to join one of the community groups, as we call them, that's okay. You've still got to encourage people. You pray for people. You've still got to obey the command. But do you see the point? It's so easy to add commands. And then the Christian life feels weighty. So if you imagine you're going on a walk and you put on a backpack and it fits really nicely and you feel all ready for the walk and then someone puts a brick in it and then another brick and another brick and suddenly you begin to weigh down and down and down and down. That's what happens if we add to God's word, add commands that just aren't there. It's fascinating. When you talk to people and they say, I'm not doing very well as a Christian, so often when you say, why? The things they list are things that actually aren't commands. We add commands. We add false promises. Secondly, remember the Pharisees? If you keep the law, God will bless you. And we say, look, if I just live the Christian life rightly, if I'm faithful, my marriage will be easy. Surely God has promised to bless me if I live a good Christian life. If I just say my prayers strongly enough, God will heal my child. Not a promise. And sometimes feel, people, again, feel incredibly guilty, feel like they failed as Christians because something has happened. Suffering has come into their lives. And they feel it's their fault. If only I'd had more faith, prayed more, tried harder, it wouldn't have happened. But I, the Bible just doesn't work like that. God doesn't promise us a, a clear run of sort of blessing and glory. If we add in promises to God's word that are frankly not there, that again, we're likely to get crushed, weighed down. And perhaps most significantly of all, we, we add to the gospel. That the gospel is, is simple in one sense, isn't it? The gospel tells us that, that Christ has done everything for us. That, that in order to enter heaven, the true Sabbath rest, to enter that eternal life where everything will be at harmony again, to have a blessed life, Christ has done all the work. He's lived the life we should have lived. He's died the death we should have died. And all we have to do is believe in him. And yet, we won't do that one simple thing, trust in Christ alone. We start thinking, well, look, I do believe in Jesus, but I, God is still so disappointed with me because I, I'm not a good Christian. Maybe I won't actually get into heaven because of the, the stuff I said last week, the stuff I thought, the way I lashed out at my husband, or what I looked at at the internet. We, we, we start making the gospel about, well, Jesus died for my sins, but I need to chip in and do my bit. Because we won't believe in grace alone, we start feeling the burden again, as if somehow we've got to earn our way into heaven. And it crushes us. Life becomes so much more restful if you just trust and let God's word alone rule you. And what will happen if God's word alone rules you? Well, it will restore you. We don't have time to look at this in any detail, but in 9 through 14, Jesus gets into another Sabbath controversy. There's a man with a withered, dried up hand. The word is used for sort of dried up wood. And the, the Pharisees say, well, you can't heal on the Sabbath, that's work. Do it tomorrow, it's not urgent. And Jesus, Jesus refuses. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he's healed. The, the picture is of Jesus bringing true Sabbath rest. 
of, of, of letting that man just for one minute, one minute or, or for a while, for the rest of his life, I guess, have a little taste of what, well, what true life in Eden was meant to be like. This man was withered and shriveled in his hand, experiencing the curses. And Jesus comes and restores him on the Sabbath, brings that joy, that rest, that freedom from suffering. It's a bit like when Jesus walks through the Gospels. He's in colour and everything else is black and white. But every now and again, he'll, he'll speak to someone or touch someone and the colour will return. A little bit of Eden follows Jesus around. He can create a kind of mini paradise around him just for a while. But his word brings this man blessing. We fear, I think, to really live in full obedience to the Bible, to Jesus. We fear that actually Jesus is leading us into danger, to harm. That if I really go for it, it's a way of well, disaster rather than blessing. But actually God's word alone restores you. Do you see that? Verse 13, the man's hand was restored. So even if you don't understand what Jesus is calling you to do, if you obey him, it will restore you. We're called to obey him even if we disagree. There will be times when God's word challenges you. That is why, by the way, we preach through books of the Bible, because it means we, we have to deal with everything God says, not just the bits we like. Okay, you don't, I, think, I think you want to be a little bit nervous if the preacher sort of dots around and just chooses his favourite passages. Because, well, the preacher starts setting any agenda. Even if God's word disagrees with you, it is still a word that is given to restore you. Even if it seems impossible to obey. Are there times when God has said to you, you know, you must do this, you think that's impossible. I cannot break this sin. I cannot keep my temper with the children. I cannot resist looking at that online again. I just cannot be a bold evangelist. But think about this man. Isn't what Jesus said to him incredibly cruel? Verse 13. Are there the cruelest words you've read in the Bible? He's got a withered hand, and Jesus says, stretch out your hand. I can't stretch. What a withered, that's the whole point. It's like saying to a blind man, can you just read this? Or to a deaf man, listen to this. They can't. But they can when Jesus gives the command. His word brings the power to respond. There's nothing in the man that enables him to obey, other than the word that Jesus gives him. The very word that Jesus speaks, stretch out your hand, enables him to obey. God's word brings its own power. God's word alone restores us. And God's word now comes to us through the scriptures. Why the Bible is so important. I said this isn't going to be another talk about reading the Bible. But so often you end up somewhere back there, don't you? It is the word of God that comes to us in power. When Christ speaks to us through his word, he does so to lift burdens, to restore us to what we should be. And the irony, verse 14 the Pharisees who say that you shouldn't heal on the day, they go away and use the day to plot to kill Jesus. Legalistic living wants to kill Jesus, hates the gospel. And the irony is that Jesus knows this full well. And actually it's through them killing him that he's able to bring rest for us. It is through his death, taking on all our burdens, all our sin, all our failure, all our weakness, bearing the curse of God on the cross, being buried in the grave and then rising again to full, new, Sabbath-restored life, that actually he's able to then share true rest with us. He was willing to be destroyed in order that we might find rest. That's why you can trust his word even when it's difficult or challenging. If he loves you enough to go to the grave when he needn't have done, 
then you can be sure that every word he speaks to you, every time his word rules over you in a way that challenges you, you can be confident is there to restore you. I suspect, I don't, I, this morning I don't know loads of you, but I suspect some of you will be at crossroads in, in your life. Maybe you've left home for the first time or starting studying or whatever it might be. I mean, the first time I went away from home, it was a disaster. I started working. I'd been a Christian as a teenager. I started working. Absolute disaster. Miles away from God. Often leaving home is a crossroads time. Please, I encourage you. Christ says, follow me and I will restore you. My word brings blessing. Living under his rule is the best way to live. It will bring suffering. It will bring challenges. He does say elsewhere, it's, it's bearing a cross at times. But ultimately, it's a word that restores, renews, refreshes and brings rest. So trust him and come and be fed by him week by week as he speaks to us.